Nepal ex-Gurkhas get stuck in. Well, we're not a disaster relief organisation, but we do have very intimate working knowledge of what goes on in the hills. Trident is a done deal, so why does the debate go on? Nobody has ever used an atomic weapon against a country that has them. Even someone who is slightly deranged would think very much again about doing it. Hello, I'm Paula Middlehurst. So, a team of Gurkha engineers then has arrived already in Nepal alongside tons of aid supplies to strengthen the British relief effort. Hundreds of shelter kits and solar lanterns are among the 18 tons of supplies carried on the RAF C-17 aircraft, which has already landed earlier on today. An earthquake response fund has also been launched by the Gurkha Welfare Trust. Our reporter James Hurst has been speaking to the organisation's chairman, General Sir Peter Well, let me start by saying that our hearts go out to everybody out there. The extent of this tragic situation is far from clear. And our sense through uh, the people we're talking to out on the ground, to people in our welfare centres, is that uh, this fault line caused by the earthquake is um, about 150 miles long and it goes straight through the middle of our core Gurkha recruiting area. So we've got a lot of affected families of service people, but we've also got a lot of our former service men and their families living in this area and obviously having a very precarious time at the moment. So the British government's response, from our perspective, is extremely welcome. Uh, it's rapid, it's positive, and it's, it's going to be very meaningful. Uh, it's too early to say what the full extent of the, uh, of the damage is and you know, what the best form of international response is going to be. Um, and, you know, we, we in the Gurkha Welfare Trust have a network that we're very keen supports all of the international activity. What is the Gurkha Welfare Trust able to do on the ground in Nepal in this situation? Well, we're not a disaster relief organisation, but we do have uh, a very intimate working knowledge of what goes on in the hills, um, how villages operate and, frankly, what was there before, because it looks rather different now, I sense. There's a large proportion of those villages that are almost completely devastated. And so our our initial response will be to try and shore up water supply, to provide emergency medical support, but above all to try and get a a clear picture of the overall situation so that we can frame the medium-term response. And, of course, we have a particular constituency of former uh, Gurkha servicemen and their families and the wider Gurkha communities from which we draw our soldiers, which is our priority. And... For those in the UK who want to, to help but can't physically do anything, uh, you've launched an, an appeal to, so that people have, have a, a route that they can, can offer assistance. Yeah, overlaid on our normal steady-state fundraising activity, which is all about Gurkha pensioners, is uh, an earthquake response fund uh, which will allow people to donate through the internet to ensure money gets channelled immediately into emergency action, which we will be conducting in concert with a number of other agencies. What about the Gurkha headquarters that are in Nepal? Do do we know if if, if they're being able to offer any assistance in the whole situation? Yes, uh, British Gurkhas Nepal, with its headquarters in Kathmandu and outstations in Dharan and Pokhara, has always been a fundamental plank in these sorts of incidents in the past. And then we have 22 what we call area welfare centres, which are in the, some of which are in the middle of the earthquake belt, which um, have survived 
can still function and can start to roll out um, immediate um, emergency aid, but I stress, supported by the broader international community response. And of course, there are a, a, a lot of uh, Gurkha families in the UK who are worried uh, uh, about relatives, be they Gurkha veterans or, or others. Information is difficult at a time like this, isn't it? Yeah, it's very patchy. Um, I know of some families based in UK who are aware that the worst has befallen their families, their wider families, and others who are just hanging on for news. That was General Sir Peter Wall speaking to our reporter James Hurst. Well, I'm joined as usual by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher, uh, really the most obvious way for Britain to respond, isn't it? Uh, sending Gurkha soldiers back into Nepal. It's not obvious in the sense of uh, a military action, uh, in as much that you you send people into a disaster area like this. For example, you, you look around and say, right, I want a battalion of engineers. You put the sappers in there. Um, you want people who understand how, how to use heavy equipment, how to, how to make and do. But the important thing, of course, is with the Gurkha, you've got local knowledge. You've got people who will understand what is possible and what is impossible in the context of how people survive anyway. So you're not trying to bring them back to a standard of life they might see in Serbia and Surrey, but you are understanding something else. And there's that, the other thing is language. They speak the language, which is extraordinarily important. They speak the dialects as well. And also they understand the importance of Dahran and Pokhara, where the Gurkha, the Gurkha re- recruiting stations as well, and the fact that people sort of travel days and days to get there and to get into into the regiment. And this produces a sort of esprit and a... Uh, local knowledge plus friendships and understanding and recognition and people who look at the Gurkhas and they say, we'll work with these guys, we trust them. Whereas a lot of people that are perhaps in the relief operation for very, very good reasons are not always trusted. And it's like a family being in the Gurkhas, the veterans, it seems, are getting involved as well. Yeah, I mean, it's the same sort of thing, really. Um, People locally know who are Gurkhas, uh, but there is a style... Uh, there is also re- remarkable uh, resourcefulness of, uh, you know, the lowest rank in the Gurkhas to the highest officer. Sadly, uh, this has uh, happened at the start of the Gurkha 200 celebrations today. Gurkha soldiers marching from Buckingham Palace along the Mall to the Gurkha statue in Whitehall in celebration of 200 years of loyal service. But, of course, their minds will be concentrated elsewhere. Their minds, you know, there's a reflection that their minds will be. But they're single-minded soldiers, um, you know, if somebody says, march down the mall, that's exactly what they will do, and they'll probably do it better than anybody else. They will also have this uh, astonishing connection uh, with the British public, who don't necessarily understand what Gurkhas do, but understand who they are and why they're important. There's a huge amount of affection for the Gurkhas, probably more than any other regiment in the British Army, I think. Um, and that is reflected, I think, today, if you, if you were on the mall. Chris, for the moment, thank you. Still to come, there's a new man in charge of northern Cyprus. But what will that mean for the stalled peace talks? And Britain's greatest generation. Stories of VE Day and beyond. This is BFBS. Sit rep. So former leaders of Britain's armed forces have warned it would be irresponsible folly not to renew Britain's nuclear armed submarines after the election. They've written an open letter about it and addressed it to whoever becomes Prime Minister. There are 20 signatories, including three former heads of the armed forces, two former defence secretaries and two former directors of GCHQ. Former First Sea Lord Admiral Lord West is one of them. 
when you have got people in the world like President Putin, um, I have no doubt whatsoever that if they were opposed to countries that didn't have nuclear weapons, and if he wanted to achieve things by force, and he has shown us that he's quite happy to do that, that he would be willing in the final analysis to use them. Nobody has ever used an atomic weapon against a country that has them. And I think even someone who is slightly deranged would think very much, uh, again, about doing it. And therefore, it is our ultimate insurance policy and very important for our nation. Well, earlier on, I spoke to former Chief of the Defence Staff, Lord Boyce. I asked him why Britain still needs nuclear weapons. Well, I think that uh, we're not very good at predicting when uh, things are going to go bad in the world. We've been very bad at doing it over the last uh, three or four decades and there's every sign in this very unstable world at the moment with, an, with such nuclear powers as there are building up their weapon stocks that it would be unwise for us to relinquish our capability at this moment. Lord Boyce, a lot of fuss has been made about President Putin and the sorts of choices he's likely to make, and that's Russia. But uh, the point has also been made that Trident doesn't protect the UK against IS. What's your reaction to that? Well, on your latter point, the, the Trident uh, nuclear deterrent is not designed to protect against failed states or, uh, or bodies such as IS. It's designed to, be, to protect ourselves against states who have a nuclear capability and who threaten our homeland. So far as Russia is concerned, it is absolutely the fact that Russia at the moment is building up its nuclear capability. And Mr Putin has made nuclear threats uh, in, in the last few months uh, against other countries. And so it's not something which can be trivialised. And we'd be very wise to make sure we don't relinquish our nuclear capability, our deterrent, uh, while such behaviour is going on. Can I put to you that other question that's doing the rounds uh, that some people are asking? If we didn't have Trident, would we buy it? No, because we're not in that position. Uh, there are, the, the number of sunk costs in Trident at the moment are, are huge, and it would be an enormous expense to try and start from ground zero. And anyway, uh, I, we are very firm signatories to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and I'm quite certain that if we didn't have it, we would not want to breach that treaty, which, which a purchase from Fresh would certainly do. Trident's come up then as a huge subject in the election, uh, getting people interested in defence issues in a way they haven't been engaged before. Uh, do you think Trident's under threat, whatever the outcome of the election? No, I think what has been comforting in, about the debate uh, about the Trident nuclear system over the last uh, month or so is that both the two main parties, that's to say the Labour and Conservative, have both said they see a need to retain our deterrent and furthermore, so that deterrent should be exercised by having continuous at-sea deterrent. And so both the main parties are for this, so I don't think that it is under threat in the next government. Which begs the question, if both main parties are likely to back each other in the event of any vote on replacement submarines, why have you sent the letter to The Times? Because I think it's very important that the Prime Minister, uh, the, the next Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of the day uh, in, after May the 7th, understands there are a number of responsibilities he's taking on. Uh, we've seen the main gate, as it's called, the decision to actually go ahead and formally commission uh, the successor programme being delayed uh, from uh, 2015 to 2016. That main gate decision comes up in 2016 and, and should not be deferred again for political uh, reasons, which is why it was deferred the last time. And so this is a reminder to Prime Minister that we need to get on and make this decision. If we don't make it in 2016, we're putting the nuclear deterrent uh, under threat because the replacement system will not be ready before the current system ages out. 
And uh, along with a number of other considerations, we think it's important for the future Prime Minister to remember as he takes up this, the office and the particular responsibility he has for this particular weapon system. That was Lord Boyce speaking to me earlier. Well, Christopher Lee is still here with me. Uh, why have these 20 signatories seen it as so important as to have to write a letter to the Times, Chris? That's what generals do, quite frankly, when they retire. <laughs> um, they write letters to the Times about things which they think are extraordinarily important and have always been important to them. Um, when you look at um, the debate, the so-called debate on defence, the only thing that has happened in this election is that debate really has been about Trident. And that debate has really been sort of passed up, not by the politicians uh, and commentators, but largely by the, uh, the gallant and retired uh, general officers. And it's because it is the one thing they lived with. Forget about regiments or ships or carriers or aircraft. That's a totally different part of defence. Trident, or its renewal, or Vanguard, is really about deterring the use of nuclear weapons. Um, I go back to two people. One is uh, uh, Lord Heseltine, when he was Defence Secretary in the 1980s. Remember him, we were talking about, because he's got to renew the whole idea of Polaris, then became Chevalier, etc. And I said, you know, if we hadn't got one, would you buy one? He said, no. Dennis Healy, who was probably the best post-war Defence Secretary that the United Kingdom had, he said that if he had to press the button, or the pressing of the button, it would have failed. And he wouldn't have bought one either. And so this is the, it's a changing world. But, in, but in, these guys saying it's still dangerous and they can't and and the, uh, President Putin is, is is a potential foe and that's what they want to do. But in times of austerity, when there are cutbacks everywhere, we need 30, uh, million, 30 billion for the NHS, uh, schools need rebuilding and so on. What about the price tag? £100 billion. Speaking to Lord Boyce, he said it isn't really like that. It's about £2 billion a year if you break it down over its lifetime. Yeah, that, uh, and, and that's, well, in fact, it's probably more than that. But that, uh, you know, the, I don't think the cost matters. It is a principle here that we're talking about. And it's the principle, for example, if you said, look, we're going to delay, let's say, for three or four years, that's all. And you could delay for three or four years, the best technician. I've spoken to say uh, for, to start the renewal program you could probably build a new A&E so, uh, system within the National Health Service but we're not into that sort of thing what we're into is the fact that do we believe that by having nuclear weapons we are strategically and morally uh, in a position to deter an attack on the United Kingdom a case is unproven but the case is there and it will be honoured and with this discussion being so public and it being an election issue and a very high-profile argument topic, if you like, how is that being read by Russia? Um, Russia's pretty smart on, on, on British politics. It's very, very, very smart indeed. Um, and I would reckon that... Uh, well, in fact, I know that it's certainly in, in, in the Council of Defence uh, uh, appreciation in, in Moscow, nobody is saying uh, the renewal of Trident will affect the, the, the outcome of uh, the election in Huddersfield. In other words, <laughs> it's not part of the election deal. While we're talking about Russia, they've been showing off a new tank, haven't they? What do you know about that? Well, I quite... Yeah, I mean, it, it is totally new. If you go back to the uh, Russian uh, tank design, say, from the T-35, the T-55, uh, 52 and the latest one with the T-90, they're all basically the same. 
with more powerful guns and better engines up. Uh, you know, it's what you do with a uh, with, with good Czechoslovakian uh, engineering as well. What's different about this? It is compartmentalized. There's a lot of uh, electronics in it. You can put the crew in a different place in the tank, which makes it uh, which makes it safer for them. You can actually fire missiles from it instead of just uh, 105 shells from it. Totally different, a generational change in 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 the in the Russian. One always, almost tempted to say the old Soviet, because the Russian, uh, uh, the tankistas in, in 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 Moscow still think in Soviet style. This is a huge improvement, probably the biggest improvement in tank design since the Israelis produced the Merkava tank. And any tankistas listening will know what I mean. Chris, for the moment, thanks. Uh, let's move then from Trident to Northern Cyprus. And the new president there of Northern Cyprus, could he mean progress for peace on the divided island? Well, last week, Mustafa Akinci won 60% of the vote in the Turkish-controlled northern region of Cyprus. Will he make any difference at all? Let's talk now to Mike Theodoulou, who joins us now from Nicosia. Mike, thanks for joining us. Tell us a bit, a bit about this man then, uh, this uh, Chinzi fellow. What does he stand for? Kinchi, he's a leftist. He stands for reconciliation with the Greek Cypriots uh, and for reuniting the island under a federal system. Uh, he wants a settlement so that the Turkish Cypriots can fully benefit from the island's EU membership. The island, represented internationally by the Greek Cypriots, entered the EU 11 years ago, but the benefits only extended up to the green line that uh, is the de facto represents a de facto division of the island. Um, uh, individual Turkish Cypriots can get uh, Cyprus uh, passports and uh, travel around the EU and get benefits, but as a community as a whole they can't because their breakaway state isn't recognised by anyone but Turkey. Uh, the his campaign uh, emblem was an olive branch, which is a positive, a very positive sign. The other thing he stands for is that uh, he wants the Turkish the Cypriots to, to be on a more of an equal footing with uh, Turkey. Um, he's had a bit of a spat with the uh, Turkish president, uh, Erdogan, um, for you know, referring to, you know, to, continually to, uh, to Cyprus as its sort of uh, child. And he says, you should be treated as brothers. Uh, we're not a baby. We, you should be able to stand more on our own two feet. Erdogan wasn't too happy because uh, Turkey does have to pump a lot of money into northern Cyprus to, uh, to, to help it stand on its <laughs> feet. And with that emblem of peace, the olive branch being held out by him, uh, what do the Greek Cypriots make of this? Is it going to make any difference to them? It could make a, a difference. His election was warmly welcomed by President Anastasiades. He's the Greek Cypriot uh, leader, and uh, he also uh, supported a UN settlement plan 11 years ago, Anastasiades, that was uh, eventually turned down by the majority of Greek Cypriots in a, a referendum, even though it was accepted by the Turkish Cypriots. Uh, Akinci have certainly improved the atmosphere. It should boost the momentum. The UN seems happier. Everyone's uh, fairly happy by this development. There will be a few Greek Cypriot uh, rejectionist or hardline parties that will be a bit concerned uh, that uh, his outreach and that uh, Anastasiades uh, will, will return his outreach, which he seems keen to do. Anastasiades is meeting Akinci uh, next week, immediately after Akinci's uh, election, Anastasiades announced a few confidence-building measures uh, t 
Borokinchi, including handing over maps to 28 minefields in northern Cyprus laid out by the Greek Cypriots, uh, handing over management of certain Muslim religious sites in southern Cyprus uh, to a Turkish Cypriot uh, foundation that oversees Islamic uh, land holdings, uh, and uh, w- one other uh, lesser confidence-building measure. And Akinci is also suggesting uh, you know, he could be interested or promote a, a major confidence-building measure by returning to the Greek Cypriots uh, a fenced-off ghost town that the Greek Cypriots left during the 1974 Turkish invasion. Mike Theodoulou, thanks for that, Uh, but stay with us. We want you to tell us about this Danish container ship and its crew, which are still being held by the Iranian authorities. The Maersk Tigris was seized in the Strait of Hormuz yesterday, oh, sorry, on Tuesday. The Iranian patrol vessels firing warning shots at the ship after its captain refused to go deeper into Iranian waters. Uh, Mike Theodoulou, we'll talk to you about this as well. Uh, Can you tell us what's going on about that there? It appears the uh, ship is still being held. Most of the crew are uh, Asian and East European. Uh, There are reports that one of the 24 crew is is a Briton. Um, The the ship was travelling in in Iranian waters, apparently, but in an international shipping lane. That's uh, widely observed. It's a very unusual thing. Uh, to do. The Iranians uh, say it's a purely legal affair that the uh, uh, the mayor's company owes money to a private Iranian company under a court order dating back in the disputes 14 years old. But there is speculation that Iran is probably um, kicking back after it has been embarrassed last week when it had some ships heading off to the Yemeni port of Aden and uh, U.S. warships uh, there were uh, boosted their presence there, effectively turning the Iranian ships back, and that was a bit of a humiliation. So is this anything to worry about? Well, it comes at a very sensitive time. The new nuclear talks uh, are, are ongoing, and they seem to be making uh, progress. There's also the war in Yemen, where uh, Iran is allied uh, to the Houthi rebels, Saudi Arabia is, is bombing them. Um, it could be that uh, some hardliners in Iran are trying to cause problems with nuclear talks and to up the ante a bit, but it's not too worrying, I don't think, from that point of view, because Iran's supremely is behind the nuclear talks, and I don't think he'll want this to escalate. And yesterday, Iran's foreign minister did say uh, that uh, Iran has uh, no intention of blocking navigation rights uh, within this very vital oil shipping waterway. Uh, If you remember, there was a a much more tense incident in in 2007 when the Iranians uh, seized 15 British soldiers um, in, in the northern part of the Persian Gulf and held them for 13 days until they were freed by the hardline president at the time, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. This time we have a much more uh, moderate president, so it's likely to get resolved. Mike Theodolo, uh, thanks for talking to us about that as well. Thank you. Well, let's talk now about some other stories which have caught your eye, Christopher. Let's start with the uh, growing refugee crisis in Iraq. What's happening there is that you've got somewhere in the region of a couple of million people on the move. Uh, The Iraqi government troops have had some success in shifting IS further back from certain places. But this is not happening as they advertise. And so people are simply getting out of the way. And when you have this huge movement of people, now, for example, 
thousands queuing on the bridge trying to get into into Baghdad, you you create a, a, a what is an almost uncontrollable, therefore unstable society in Baghdad, in the capital, and this is exactly what IS wants to happen. You produce that instability. You therefore get recruits. You therefore make the troops having to we preoccupy the troops in another form of, of of warfare, and therefore the whole country becomes far more vulnerable, and you establish yourself more more safely than you expect to be, especially in places like Mosul. Let's move on to Saudi Arabia. The Saudi king making a few changes to his line of succession. Why has he done that? Well, he, um, I mean, all sorts of reasons, but the main point is to get rid uh, of his successor, uh, uh, Makrin, who is 69, uh, Prince Makrin. And what he's done, he's, he's brought in uh, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Nayef as his heir, um, and he's also brought in as a, his son... Um, and, and that's Mohammed bin Salman, who is only 29, as his second heir, if anything happens to him. He's 69 and uh, 79, rather, and he's not in good nick. The important thing is to take command of security in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is fighting desperately to stop IS and anybody else, for that matter, not just extending the war that's going on, let's say, in Yemen, where they're taking part, but also in uh, Saudi Arabia itself. Uh, they've just nicked 93 people for trying to bomb the American embassy. The Americans don't trust them. They're losing a lot of faith and they need to get back on there. But the most important thing of this is that they're gradually getting rid of people and into the key uh, uh, places, and that will be the future king. And the number two, they're putting back members of the famous Saud family, the founders of Saudi Arabia. They trust each other and nobody else. Christopher Lee, for the moment, thank you. Now it's almost 70 years since VE Day, which marked the end of the Second World War in Europe. And as time passes, the number of people still alive to tell us what it was actually like to be there is decreasing. Well, the writer, Sue Elliott, has been working hard to get their accounts of this event and life in general for this generation recorded on paper and on film. She joins me now. Sue, nice to see you. Uh, This is all for a new book and a BBC television series. What exactly did you set out to achieve to pin down? I think it was partly a tribute to a generation which is my parents' generation, really. They went through so much. Um, They put up with much more than we have had to put up with. Um, And they they grew up as children during the Depression. Um, They grew up in the shadow of the Great War and then they had to fight another war. So I think what we set out to do was to capture their stories, ordinary people's stories. There are no real... Well, there are heroes here, obviously, but they're not well-known heroes. Um, I think because they're, they're fast... We're fast losing them, really. These people are in their 80s and 90s now, and we wanted to capture their stories and celebrate them. It's a celebration, really. And as you heard those stories, Sue, is there any that particularly stand out to you that you remember as being particularly surprising? So many, so many stories. Um, everyday stories of women... Um, grabbing a rabbit from the jaws of their cat because they were determined not to let the cat have the rabbit because rationing was so, <laughs> so um, you know, hard in the wartime years. I think one of the 
the most moving stories we heard was from a man called Fergus Ancorn, who was captured in the fall of Singapore, uh, was a Japanese prisoner of war for four years. Um, he survived, he said, by not thinking of yesterday, not thinking of tomorrow, only thinking of today and getting through today. And that's how he survived enormous cruelty and, and hardship for um, four years. And what about today's generation? Uh, we're always hearing about the baby boomers having the best mm. of everything. Do you think they appreciate what's gone before? Do you think that they can see what you mean when you're trying to describe these stories? Well, these experiences? I, cer I certainly didn't growing up. And if only my mum and dad were here now to ask the questions I know to ask now, um, I, I would... I would have learnt so much more and I think younger generations are perhaps more sympathetic to their their grandparents and their great-grandparents and part of this whole project, uh, there's an associated project with the BFI, the British Film Institute, to encourage school children to make films with elderly people to capture their stories and I think that's quite important. Well, we can hear those stories very soon when uh, the TV documentary comes out on the BBC. Sue Elliott, thank you very much. Co-author there of Britain's Greatest Generation, How Our Parents and Grandparents Made the 20th Century. Thanks for joining us, thank Sue. You. Just one final thought from you, Christopher. Word about Gallipoli. Well, Gallipoli, yes, we've been celebrating Gallipoli. We've been ce celebrating the end of the Second World War. But today, this very day, is another anniversary, and that is the end of the war in Vietnam. And that war is a scar on American political thinking. Every time there's a conflict, people say, is this another um, Vietnam for America? Shouldn't ignore it. Christopher Lee, thank you. That's it from SITREP. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.